It's been a long time since I worked in the marketplace, and business terminology changes over the years, but back in those days, we used to talk about what we called the critical transaction. And you see, I think it makes sense for people to understand that when when you run a business, there's a whole lot of things that you have to do to be successful. There's a lot of variables at play. Personnel management, purchasing, sales, inventory management, accounting. (laughs) All of those things are important, but, but there's a critical transaction that is at the core of everything you do. It's the one thing that you can't overlook as you manage all other aspects of your business. For example, suppose you own a chain of retail stores. If you do, there's a whole lot of stuff you've got to take care of. You've got to manage all of those stores. And you could have a lot of great stores in a lot of great locations. You could have done purchasing really well, and you could have a line of great merchandise. You could have trained excellent salespeople, and you could have marvelous advertising campaigns that bring hordes of shoppers into your store. And all of that needs to be managed well. But there's one critical transaction upon which everything hinges. And that's when somebody actually takes an item from the shelf and walks up to the checkout counter and makes a purchase. Because if that never happens, everything else goes away, right? One critical transaction that is central to everything that happens. It's the pivot point upon which the business turns and everything else has to keep that critical transaction in mind as you make decisions. So we used to talk a lot about that back in my business days. And over the years as I moved on from the marketplace, I've realized that this principle of the critical transaction isn't important just for businesses, it's important for every organization. And I've spent a lot of time pondering, what does that principle mean in the life of the church? As a community of people who desire to follow Jesus, What is our critical transaction? I think it's every time we say these words to God. Lord, I am willing to change. Now why do I think that question is so critical? It's because a willingness to change prompts us to ask the very first question of faith which is, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued from my sinful condition and get a fresh start with God? A willingness to change prompts us to ask that question and get started in the life of faith. Plus, a willingness to change prompts us to keep on asking questions of faith. Questions like, search my heart, O God, and as you do, would you show me if there's anything in me that's keeping me from the best that you have for me? To say, Lord, are there things that I need to let go of in order for you to keep forming and developing me as a person of faith? You see, without a willingness to change, there can be no salvation, there can be no forgiveness, there can be no ongoing spiritual growth. It is central and foundational to the life of faith. 
And here's what I've come to believe, if that is if we are not a community of people who want to be changed by God and are willing to be changed by God, then I think all we're doing here in the church is providing a form of spiritual entertainment. And I think God has something so much more rich in store for us than that. And so our God loves it when we come to him and say, Lord, I am willing to change. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book of Ephesians that we're now studying, he certainly understands the power of God to change a human life. There was a time when Paul was an arrogant, self-righteous Jew. A man who had been full of condescension and even anger toward people who were not like him. But God confronted Paul, and Paul yielded and was willing to change. And God transformed him. And here's a key piece. How did God change him? He changed him from the inside out by transforming his character. You see, God doesn't want us to just to have different outward behavior. He wants to make us new people from within. And so when Paul became a follower of Jesus, God began to form his character in a new way. And then Paul learned how to live out and express that new character in new ways. Because Paul was willing to change. He was able to lay aside anger and hatred. And instead he was able to love like Jesus to serve like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus. Because of God's work on Paul's character, Paul became a new person. And oh, did he flourish. And Paul is now eager for his friends in the church at Ephesus to experience what he's experienced and he wants them to grasp the critical importance of becoming willing to change, to always be open to God's changing, transforming work and it's so critical for them to understand that God's change always works from the inside out as he continually reshapes the character of Jesus' followers. Paul wants the Ephesians to grasp this because he knows when that happens, when they embrace the critical transaction, when they're constantly saying to God, Lord, I'm willing to change, Paul knows then they will flourish. And what was true for the ancient Ephesians can be true for us. It's ours for the asking. We just have to say to God, Lord, I'm willing to change. And when we say that to God, then he begins and he continues the process of character formation within us. And let's take a look at how that happens, starting in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. 
Now I say, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, listen to what comes next. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Let that phrase catch your attention. Created after the likeness of God. He's talking about Jesus followers and God doing that in us. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, now Paul begins this section with a pretty provocative comment when he writes, don't live like the Gentiles. And In fact, that comment might seem particularly pointed when we realize he's writing a letter to a church that mostly consists of Gentiles. (laughs) It comes across as kind of in your face. Here's what we need to understand, though. He's not actually singling out Gentiles because he's writing here to the whole church. And not everyone in this church is a Gentile. There also are Jewish converts to Christianity in the church in Ephesus. But here's what's interesting. These are not Jerusalem Jews steeped in the culture of Israel. These are Greek Jews, people who are immersed in and comfortable with the Gentile culture of their surrounding community. And the Gentile culture of Ephesus is Greek and it is pagan. It is idolatrous. The Gentile Greek culture of that day is not based on and does not flow out of faith in God. So Paul's not criticizing Gentiles here as individuals. He's criticizing Greek culture, Gentile culture. And so he's saying to the church, to everyone in that church, whether they're Jew or Gentile, he's saying, you must learn to live in a way that is distinctively different from your own culture. And that's because, as Christians, they must learn to follow the way of Jesus, not the way of society. Now, let's play a little what-if game for a minute. What if you and I are living in ancient Ephesus? We're members of that church, and we're sitting there as these words are being read aloud to our church. How would we react? As Paul says, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't live like that culture. Well, we may not always like the culture around us, but at the same time, most of us don't really want to stand out as very different from the people around us. I suspect if we were there, we might squirm a bit at Paul's words because I think they're uncomfortable to hear. Don't be like your culture. Now, I don't particularly like it when, when God makes me 
uncomfortable. Yet at the same time, I want to build my life around God's truth, and I want to be willing to change when God prods me to do so. And sometimes, whether we like it or not, the way God prods us is through discomfort. Because when we become uncomfortable, we might just be more willing to say, Lord, I'm okay with some change. And I think our discomfort at these words from Paul will grow if we hear them as if he were writing now to us. Rather than assume we're in ancient Ephesus living to, listening to Paul, let's assume Apostle Paul is right here. And now he's speaking to us. How would we read this passage? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Americans do. In the futility of their minds. Americans are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Americans have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One simple word change. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, ouch. Because I think those words are painfully true. And what we need to see that is just like our spiritual ancestors in Ephesus, we are immersed in a culture that often promotes and even celebrates ungodly behavior. Paul's words are a reminder that a community without God at its center, whether ancient Ephesus in the midst of Greek culture or Springfield, Oregon in the midst of American culture, a community without God at its center easily can lose its moral compass. And so as followers of Jesus, we can't take our ethical cues from the culture. We must live differently. And yet we have to acknowledge that can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, and we might find ourselves asking, okay God, just how different do you want us to be? And I don't think we're supposed to live so differently that we become freaks. I don't think we're supposed to live as countercultural clowns. And so we need to discern how to be different from our culture. And I'm thankful that here Paul shows us where to draw those lines. We don't indulge ourselves in greedy sensuality. That's the key line. Because that's where a godless culture winds up. When people ignore the spiritual dimension of life and forget about the importance of their souls, they so often turn to sensual self-indulgence. And we've seen that cycle repeated throughout human history. When cultures are not anchored in God, they wind up indulging in greedy sensuality. And we see it all around us in our world. But how do we guard ourselves against that? How do we live in a culture that, that often mocks people of faith and promotes so much decadence? What do we do? Well, I see Christians often respond in one of two ways. Some Christians divorce themselves from the culture and barely associate with non-Christians. 
or, or because they don't want to be isolated. They stay engaged with the culture, but they do it to such a degree that they get sucked in. And instead of being a light to the world and an influence within the culture, then the culture shapes them often in unhealthy ways. Neither of those two things is the best response. First and foremost, we are not supposed to run away from the world around us and insulate ourselves because God wants us to bring his light into the darkness of our very broken world. Yet despite knowing that's what God wants, despite knowing that's what Jesus asks of us, Many Christians live with what I call a fortress mentality where they spend their time within an insular community of like-minded people. And yes, they may know Christians and they may interact with some, or excuse me, work with non-Christians and spend time with some non-Christians, but, but I find that there's a whole lot of believers that actually have very few meaningful relationships with unbelievers. And yet I understand why that is so easy to do. It's because it can feel risky to spend a lot of time around people who don't share our values. And Christians often point to warnings in Scripture like this one I just read from Paul about not yielding to the surrounding culture. It's understandable to feel a sense of risk because when we stay engaged with a self-indulgent, sensualized society, we may become desensitized to sin. And I can give you countless examples. But here's one. When our oldest daughter, Karina, was 12, she attended a birthday party for one of her friends. And there were about a dozen 12-year-old girls at this party. All of them were connected to families that were part of the church that we were attending at that time. And we found out later when Karina came home, she told us about what went on at the party, and she said, you know, most of the night we talked about movies. And she was surprised to find that she was the only girl at this party who had not gone to see a currently very popular movie that was showing in the theaters. And that movie included partial nudity and simulated lovemaking between teenagers. Karina felt obviously like the odd person out because she hadn't been to that movie, but I'm really glad we didn't take her. But Julie and I found ourselves asking, why would Christian parents take their young 12-year-old daughters to a movie that includes partial nudity and simulated lovemaking between young teenagers? Are these friends of ours in the church, are they bad parents? No, I don't think they're bad parents. I think they become consumed by the culture and they become desensitized to sensuality and sin and so they just go along with the crowd and they do what everyone else does. And they don't even realize what's happening within them. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 8.12 says something that I really think really speaks to modern society. Jeremiah is speaking to ancient Israel about a time when they descended into sinfulness, and he writes, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. 
Brothers and sisters, I think we live in a culture that to a great extent has forgotten how to blush because we become desensitized to attitudes and actions that are harmful to our souls. But, but all of this leaves us, I think, in a bit of a quandary because God says, I don't want you to live with a fortress mentality and isolate yourselves from the world because then you'll never draw people to Jesus. But I also don't want you to hang around with people who don't share your faith and get drawn into the unhealthy attitudes and actions of the culture. God's saying, I don't want you to get sucked into that. What then is the answer? And I think the answer is here in our passage in verses 22 and 23. The answer is character. It is godly character. The answer is to say, Lord, I'm willing to change. Will you change me? God, will you develop in me and continuously renew in me a Christ-like character? That willingness to change is our critical transaction and it is essential to a vibrant Christian faith. And and here's how this works. When you and I say yes to Jesus, God places his Holy Spirit within us. And as we immerse ourselves in the life of the church and we spend time in worship and scripture and prayer, God does continually change us. And he increasingly will make us aware of attitudes and actions which are part of the old life that Paul talks about here. And he helps us lay those old things aside. And in place of the old self, God increasingly helps us embrace our new self. A new self full of new attitudes and new actions. A new self that's able to discern between what is good and right and godly and what is not. You see, as God forms within us a new character, he changes our outlook and he changes our desires. And then here's where we wind up as we increasingly grow into our godly character. We don't need to fear our culture and barricade ourselves against it. As people of godly culture, we don't need to fear that unbelievers are going to corrupt us. And that's because God is forming us into the likeness of Jesus, who spent so much time hanging out with unbelievers. And as his character becomes our character, then we will have the strength of character not to yield when our culture tries to suck us in. We'll have the strength of character not to yield when our culture pushes back against our faith. We will have the strength of character to influence others toward what is good and godly rather than allow them to influence us toward ungodliness. As people with a flourishing godly character we can bring God's light into this world as people with a godly flourishing character we will have something distinctly different to show people who are not part of the community of faith when they'll look at us they'll see a core of something that they don't have and by God's grace that will be attractive and they'll say I want to learn what has formed you to be the kind of person that you are Oh yes, we'll be different from the culture. But not in ways that are weird. We'll be different in the ways that matter. 
because people will see in us the character of Jesus Christ. And here's what I find in my own life is God continues to do that work in me day by day and week by week. I find that there's incredible freedom in this, freedom to be who the Holy Spirit is forming me to be. And there is freedom for each of us as we put on the new flourishing character of Jesus day by day by day. The Holy Spirit wants to continually form that new character, the character of Christ within each of us. And then the Holy Spirit wants to help us follow the example of Jesus in the way that we express our character, the way we live it out. And so Paul here is talking now first about character formation, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, and entering into this process of change. He's talked about the formation. Now he's going to talk about character expression and explain how we live it out. So let's continue on now in verse 25. Therefore, i.e., because of what I just said, right? Oh, little, little side note. Whenever you read the word therefore, remember this. You have to read what came before to see what the therefore is there for. <laughs> therefore always points back says because of everything I just said everything I just wrote now here's what we do to build on that therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil hmm let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now often in Paul's letters to the churches, he reaches a point where he does what he just did here, which is to provide a list. He provides a list of behaviors, often, oh, here's behaviors you should embrace and here's behaviors you should avoid. Whenever we encounter lists like this, we should not view them as exhaustive and complete because there's always many more things that Paul could include. The lists he gives us are partial and incomplete, so they serve as examples. And what God wants us to do is understand the underlying principles of these lists so we then can apply those principles to other similar behaviors. And in this case, we find a common thread that binds these particular attitudes and actions together. And specifically, Paul wants us to recognize that we cannot allow our own self-interest to undermine the health of our life together in the church. I cannot just act and react based on me. I need to act and react based on us. And for example, 
to protect my own self-interest, I might be tempted at times to lie. And why do people lie? Well, sometimes it's the lie of exaggeration. We lie to build ourselves up. Sometimes we lie to hide stuff. I might be tempted to lie because there's something in my life that I don't really want you to know about. But you see, lying, lying hurts me, but lying hurts you because lying undermines truth and it destroys trust. Lying erodes the unity of our community, which is why Paul urges us to be truthful with each other. And yet, as we think about this exhortation to be honest, let's keep in mind what Paul wrote in the previous section. If we're willing to change, we can't keep going back and dusting off that old nature and keep trying to put it back on. We can't take pieces of that old garment and and, and get them out of the closet and keep wearing them. And if we do that, if we let that old nature rear its head, then dishonesty, deceit, may keep coming back. It may push its way to the forefront. And that's why we need to pray, Lord, I'm willing to change because then God's Spirit continually makes me new. He gives me a flourishing, godly character, and what I find is that the more that happens, the easier it becomes to not want to hide behind lies. The more that my character flourishes, the more I find that telling the truth isn't fearful. It's freeing. I don't need to hide anything from my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Jesus said the truth will set you free. In a similar way, at times it may feel really good to respond to another person in anger. We all know what that's like, don't we? And Paul's not talking here about having strong feelings, and in fact, he seems to differentiate between anger and sinful anger. So a good thing for everybody to ponder is what's the difference? How's it possible to be angry and not sin? Well, here's one thing that occurs to me. I think if we're lashing out because our ego's been bruised, if we're lashing out because we have a desire for revenge, that sounds like sinful anger to me. But whatever drives it, sinful anger is really harmful to relationships. And oh yes, there's times when it feels really good to let it out but that's so short-sighted because my anger is harmful in every way. Sinful anger hurts me and it hurts you and it hurts us. And here's the other thing that Paul helps us see is sinful anger can give the enemy a foothold. Sinful anger is an avenue for Satan to get his grips on us. And we never can forget that Satan is the enemy of our souls and oh, he loves to drive wedges between us and other believers. And the last thing that Satan wants is a healthy, unified church and he often uses our selfish, sinful anger to drive us apart. I once read a book about the history of church splits. Oh my goodness, was it painful. And there wasn't a single one that split for a good reason or did it in a good, godly way. Because so often it's driven by sinful, selfish anger. And you see, brothers and sisters, we don't have to head down that path. 
Once again, in this area of anger, like in the area of honesty, if I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to continually form within me a Jesus-like character, and if I'm consistently saying to God, Lord, I am willing to change, then he will honor that prayer, and he'll help me express my character in ways that build up rather than undermine the community of faith. And so here as Paul talks about character expression, he wants us to see this distinct difference with the old nature, the old self. That old nature is self-centered and self-indulgent. And the new nature looks beyond self and also always considers what is good for others. We see this very clearly when Paul talks about work. He talks first about a person who steals. Obviously somebody who steals is very selfish. They're not thinking about others because they're robbing from the labor of other people. And a person who doesn't steal but who works for their money is not selfish. They're self-sufficient. They're not relying on others. That's good. Ah, but there's a next step. Because a person with flourishing character shares from his or her labor with people in need. A person of flourishing character recognizes I don't just work for me. I work to take care of my needs. I work to be self-sufficient. I don't want to steal from the labor of others, but I also work in hopes that I will have something that I can use in the right times, in the right ways, in the right places to bless other people with who may have less than me. That's an outgrowth of a flourishing Jesus-like character. And by the way, we might wonder why Paul feels the need to write about things like stealing. We might say, well, he's writing to Christians. Christians wouldn't steal, would they? (laughs) Well, yeah, they might, unfortunately. Because we're still broken people. But, But here's the other reason I think Paul brings up things that are part of the old life. He wants to remind us that if we're not careful and we're not in this process of change, that the old self can, in fact, show up at times. And it's good to be reminded of what we are capable of at our worst. And to let that be an incentive to put on the new self that enables us to live with and to express a godly, flourishing character. This list helps us realize godly character expression so I don't just think about me. I also think about you. I think about us. And I think there's another interesting thread that runs through this list. Virtually everything that Paul describes here involves some form of communication. And to make sure that we really get the message, in verse 29, he addresses that issue directly by describing how godly men and women express themselves. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How often do you and I live up to that? I hate to say it, but I spend a lot of time talking for my benefit. I have a feeling you probably do too. I think a lot of our conversations motivated by our desire to impress people with what we know. 
I think our, our conversation is driven by, by this. I've got something that you need to hear. <laughs> Whether or not you're really interested in hearing it. There's nothing wrong with talking about the things that we're passionate about. But if we're developing a godly character, then we're not going to just talk about ourselves. We're not just going to talk about the things of interest to us. We're going to consider the needs of those we're talking with. And we will strive to have conversations that build them up. And then I think about Paul's words, not just in regard to our own personal conversations, but also in light of so much of our public communication today. Think about what comes at us through the media, TV, radio, movies, modern music, from the mouths of politicians, oh my goodness. <laughs> Think about what we read in news reports and blogs. So much of our discourse today does not even come close to fitting Paul's description. And, and our, our, our culture bombards you and I with communication and conversation that can draw us away from the best that God has for us because what we're hearing so often is unwholesome talk that does not build people up but instead tears them down. And so this area of communication provides you and I with an opportunity to be wise and to learn how to build some healthy boundaries. Because if we want what comes out of our mouth to be godly, then we need to be discerning about what we take in. Think of that old programming phrase, garbage in, garbage out. We can't let our character and our conversation be defined by our culture. And yes, there's a lot of unwholesome stuff out there, and I'm not suggesting that we boycott the movies and music and the internet and all the rest. What I am saying is let's be discerning about what we take in. Let's refuse to allow ourselves to become desensitized to things in our culture that are destructive to our minds and hearts and souls. And let's ask God to help us be wise so we can intelligently guard ourselves not isolate ourselves, guard ourselves. Because if we don't, then that old self is going to keep rearing its ugly head. And then we're going to fall short of being people of character, as Paul describes here. And here's what's really tragic. When we fall short, then we actually can break God's heart. And Paul describes that here as grieving the Holy Spirit. And oh man, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to break God's heart. I want to give God joy. Here's the good news. I can give God joy. And so can you. And we won't grieve the Holy Spirit when we let him continually make us new, when we invite him to continually form us so that our character becomes more and more like that of Jesus. And we talk about that a lot in the church. We talk about being formed to have a Christ-like character, but this is not some remote ideal. It's not a pipe dream. I want to take you back to these words that Paul wrote here in verse 24. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
We can have the nature and character of God. And we can express a Jesus-like character more consistently in our interactions with others. And it happens as we increasingly say, Lord, I'm willing to change. And then we yield to the Spirit and let Him do His work in us. And so that's the goal that we pursue. Yet even as we do, we have to recognize we're not perfect. We will at times put on the old self and we will at times do things that are stupid and self-indulgent and harmful to us and to others. And that's why Paul ends this passage by reminding us to be kind and forgiving people. The message of Jesus. The message of the church. The message of the kingdom of God always circles back to forgiveness. The community of faith stays strong and healthy when we remember that forgiveness is at the root of our life together because without forgiveness there would be no church. I'm here today as a follower of Jesus and as part of his church because he forgave me. And therefore, when you mess up, no matter how badly you may mess up, no matter how much you might hurt me, then I can forgive you because Jesus forgave me. And when I mess up, and I do and I will, when I mess up, no matter how badly I mess up, no matter how much I might hurt you, I need you to be willing to forgive me because Jesus forgave you. And so the most essential and profound way that you and I can express a flourishing godly character is to be kind and forgiving people. And when we live like that, oh, then we build up and strengthen the church, and we maintain our unity in the bond of love, which is what Paul talked about last week. Our unity flows out of forgiveness, and that increasingly becomes part of our character as we allow the Spirit to transform us. Now, at the start of the message, I talked about the critical transaction. I do believe that for us as members of the church of Jesus Christ, our critical transaction takes place when we say to God, Lord, I'm willing to change. And here in this passage, Paul has described how God wants to change us. He wants to form a new character within each of us. And then he wants to help us express a Christ-like character to the people around us. And so I think this leads to a question that we each need to consider. I hope we'd each be willing to ask this question of God. Lord, where do I need to be willing to change so that you, continue, you can continue your work of giving me a godly, flourishing character? I've been wrestling with that question all week, and I will continue to do so. And I encourage you to ponder that question as well and to pray over it. And as you pray over it, 
then listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and see how God might help you answer that question so that you can day by day keep putting off the old self, put on the new self, and flourish as you express the Christ-like character that God is building in you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us because there are those times when you prod us to change and, and we get stubborn and resistant and we dig in our heels. So help us to see that transformation isn't threatening, but, but rather it's freeing. And so we ask you to set us free of the baggage of the old life. Do you make us new today and every day? Do you help us to grow and change so that our nature, so that our character increasingly becomes like that of Jesus? And we know that's what you want for each of us, and I pray that that is what we would want as well. May the prayer of our heart be, Lord, I am willing to change. And Father, please answer that prayer so that we will richly flourish and experience the very best that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.